Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Connor Pope. This is In the News from the Irish Times, a podcast where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, after 40 years, is there an end in sight to the AIDS epidemic? When AIDS was first identified 40 years ago, we knew virtually nothing about the illness and where it came from. Today, we know a whole lot more about HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, and its origins. It's a story that goes back longer than most people really think. Dr Kim Roberts is a virologist at Trinity College Dublin. In old world monkeys, there is a similar type of virus called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. In the the monkeys that have co-evolved with the virus, they don't seem to get ill, so they don't seem to have symptoms. But when those SIV viruses come across and infect people, it can then evolve into what we know as HIV. The earliest record of um, an HIV positive sample that I'm aware of was taken in 1959. And we think that SIV virus crossing into humans was taking place um, at least in the, the late 1800s, possibly earlier. So there was crossing of this virus multiple times from old world monkeys into people. But then as industrialization took over and we got increased travel, including air travel, there's a greater chance for this virus to spread to other people. Bobby Campbell of San Francisco and Billy Walker of New York both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men, but has also been found in heterosexual men and women. Whilst we think about the first case of AIDS being identified in 1981, that was when there was a cluster of young men who were dying of unusual opportunistic infections that made doctors and scientists take note of this this new disease. But actually, humans have been exposed for, for decades before that. In the decades since 1981, AIDS has killed over 33 million people. The first Irish case was confirmed in 1982. Dennis Staunton, you wrote a piece for the Irish Times which drew parallels between the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and the coronavirus pandemic today. What prompted you to write that piece? At the beginning of this pandemic, in the first few weeks, there were some similarities with the first few years of the AIDS crisis. The mystery virus started here in the city of Wuhan. Nobody knew quite 
of what to think of it. You didn't know how easy it was to catch either of these illnesses. We have been talking about the possibility of, of airborne transmission and aerosol transmission as one of the modes of, of transmission of um, COVID-19. And then also, you remember everybody, the doctors and the nurses, covered in all this protective equipment. So the patient was a danger to the doctor and to the nurse. And that meant that they were treated in a particular way, which must have made whatever was happening to them much more difficult to bear. Another factor in this was a kind of an isolation at the very end, because many of the people who died of AIDS at the beginning found themselves either separated from their families because they uh, were estranged from them because they were gay or separated from their friends because their families reclaimed them. And so an awful lot of these people died rather lonely deaths. Uh, In the same way, at the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic, people were dying on their own. They weren't able to be in contact with their families. Looking back now, we can see there was a kind of prurience and a moral hysteria around AIDS in Ireland because of its association with homosexuality. Being gay was still illegal at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was illegal until the early 90s in uh, in Ireland. But obviously there was a gay scene and there was a gay world in Ireland. But I think the AIDS problem, in a way, Ireland's AIDS crisis happened mostly outside Ireland. It happened in London, it happened in America, and it happened in other European cities. So there was, you know, although people obviously did die of the disease in Ireland, it tended initially at least mostly to be elsewhere because uh, an awful lot of people just went away so that they could be so they could enjoy being gay really. Can you paint a picture of what it was like then? I mean it must have been a time of great fear and uncertainty because people wouldn't have known exactly what the illness was or how contagious it was or it must have been very frightening for people. I was in my early 20s when I went to Berlin in the middle of the 80s. West Berlin was this enclave in the middle of East Germany. It was surrounded by the Berlin Wall. An awful lot of young people wanted to live there because if you went there from West Germany, you didn't have to do military service. And also it was very cheap to live in. And so you found that an awful lot of uh, young people from West Germany and other places would come to live there and they'd find freedom. And among those were gay people. And I was one of them uh, at that time arriving from Ireland to, to this Uh, very, very free and liberated part of the world. And at that age, in our early 20s, we were focused really on uh, enjoying ourselves. That was the purpose of our lives, to have a good time and to meet a lot of people and, and, and to party. But already by then, there were reports of what was happening with AIDS. I used to go to a cafe, which was the first gay cafe in Germany, I think, to have its door open and its window open so that it didn't have to ring on a doorbell to go in, run by this old guy who would have two people behind the bar. One would be this young, kind of cute guy uh, who'd flirt with all the customers, and then the other would be a kind of an older, motherly sort of person. And one of these older, motherly types was uh, called Andy, and he was English. People would sit at the counter and sort of tell their troubles, and you'd start, as the months went, by, more and more you'd hear about either people themselves finding out this information or about friends of theirs. You started to get uh, information about the fact that if you wore a condom, that would protect you and there were safer sex practices. But of course, it's not always that easy to be uh, completely compliant, even if the stakes are very high, if you're drunk or if you've taken drugs and if you're young and if you're stupid uh, or feeling a bit foolish. And so a lot of people, even after uh, the, the word was out as to, as to how this happened, they then became ill.
It was this atmosphere of fear to the point where people tended not to want to get tested because there was no cure. Uh, If you found out that you had AIDS, then you were going to die. And you were also probably going to lose almost everything in your life. You know, it was really very common that you would hear about, say, somebody, if they were in a relationship with someone, that the the partner would uh, would end the relationship simply because they this wasn't what they'd bargained for. They didn't feel they were able to deal with something like this. At the same time, other people would feel that they were they couldn't reveal this information because of their job and uh, the attitude that people might might take towards them. And there was a kind of, even within the gay community, there was a kind of a stigma that people would sort of, uh, you know, there was a phrase that these Brazilian drag queens who used to be there at the time, they used to say, they'd point to someone and say, his ticket is booked. And, and so there was a sense that uh, if anybody knew, you'd be a sort of a marked person in a way. And what about their families? Because you mentioned already that AIDS victims in those days, they often died alone. Often these were young guys who would have moved from West Germany when they were maybe 18, 19 to go to college, never went to any lectures, but sort of went out having fun. And uh, they would have lost touch with their parents. And either they would have told their parents they were gay and the parents didn't want to know about it, or else they just would start to live this other life. And uh, and then suddenly they would get sick and they get in touch with their parents. And the first time the parents knew they were gay was when they heard that they were dying. And they, and sometimes what would happen then would be this: uh, you just wouldn't see these people again. They'd go back to their parents and their parents quite often didn't want them to have any contact with their friends. And we at the time felt this was very harsh. Uh, and it was. And it was harsh for us and it was harsh for the individual individual involved. But of course, I now, I'm much older, I kind of uh, think how terrible it must have been for the parents. And, you know, even if they if they made bad choices, that actually uh, it, really, it was a difficult choice for them to make too. And of course, they were still losing their child. Um and as you say, they're, you know, no matter what choices they made, that must have still been incredibly painful. And I guess the thing that heaped misery upon it was the stigma of the illness, because I can't think of any other illness in modern times, certainly, that has been so stigmatised. And it might be hard for people today to acknowledge that that happened, but that must have been incredibly difficult for people in the 1980s who were sick or their friends were sick. And it was a great shame as well. It was highly stigmatised and it was stigmatised in so many different ways. First of all, that it was your own fault. Uh, it was associated with this lifestyle. And uh, were you, did you really have to be so promiscuous? Did you really have to lose all control over yourself in this way that you would allow this to happen to yourself? And this was something which people heard from people very close to them. And again, with this sort of terrible uh, shocking news that people would have, then quite often lots of other things would sort of fall apart in their lives because of this stigma, because people were afraid. They were afraid to, uh, you know, partly because of ignorance, they didn't really know uh, whether it was safe to touch people, you know, whether it was safe to be close to them. Obviously, it was quite difficult for people to uh, have new partners, uh, you know, uh, because people were afraid. And then it also, quite, for example, uh, I know of a number of cases where people would um, 
know that they were HIV positive and go into relationships uh, without telling their partner for a long time. And of course, when they did, it was just such a, a kind of a collapse of trust that it was, uh, you know, quite often very difficult for that to carry on. And yet it was just, uh, you know, the pressures were, were so enormous. And I suppose what I come back to all the time is that uh, although often people had the information and they probably should have made wiser choices, we are all actually pretty flawed when it comes to that. And that if you think about it, everything in your life where you, you do something foolish, most of the time it doesn't have uh, you know, those sorts of consequences. One other thing which always makes me sad when I think about this, and there's a, I go back to Berlin quite often because I lived there for a long time, and there's a little cemetery right near where this cafe was that I used to go to, where a lot of the people who died around that time are buried. And uh, I sometimes look and I, I recognize some of the people that I knew, and, uh, and I'm always struck just by how young they were. Uh, but the other thing that I always think about is how they're, the lives ended before they really got going. So that, uh, you know, you hear often about people's great achievements and how uh, somebody who was a very talented artist or a musician and they died of AIDS or something and think about all the contribution they might have made if they'd gone further. Most of these people, most of my generation there at that time, didn't achieve anything. We weren't in the business of achieving. That wasn't what we were what we were up to. And so they ended with a, a life that was, it burned very brightly, but such, but for such a very short time and left nothing behind except the memories of their parents, probably, if they're still alive, and uh, the people who knew them. They had no children. They had no works to commemorate them. And uh, I don't know why, but it always makes me feel rather sad too. When did people start to get a sense that the illness was no longer the devastating death sentence uh, that it had been, as long as they had access to the right drugs? It was the middle of the 1990s. What had happened was there were various drugs which uh, started to be developed during the 80s and then in the early 90s. They kind of were effective to some extent on their own, but basically the virus managed to work its way around them. And what they found was that if they have a combination of two or three different kinds of drugs, that that actually was able to shut the virus down. And this happened really about 1995, 1996. And really very quickly, it changed everything because we should, of course, always say and remember that uh, we're speaking here about the rich Western world and there are many parts of the world where people still don't have access to, to the drugs and they don't have access to proper health care. And so it is still uh, a very, very serious illness. But it did from the mid 90s onwards uh, transform itself from being something which was a, uh, a death sentence to uh, a chronic uh, illness that you could live with. And again, I knew people who had been planning that they were going to be dead in a couple of years. They had sold everything and they had uh, got rid of everything. They had sort of got rid of their job. They, you know, everything was gone. And then suddenly they found that they were going to have 20, 30, 40 years more of life left or more. And so it kind of, you know, came as a shock to some, but it did, it really transformed everything. Coming up, 
virologist Dr. Kim Roberts on the breakthroughs science has made in the fight against AIDS and the work that still needs to be done. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the early days, AIDS was a death sentence. But that quickly changed as new and effective drugs came on stream. Kim Roberts, was the pace of those medical and scientific advances unusual? I think one of the one of the fascinating things with the story of HIV is the the power of the scientific community when it has funds and when it works together. So let us today set a new national goal for science. Today let us commit ourselves to developing an AIDS vaccine within the next decade. And in the, the 80s and the 90s, vast amounts of money was, was being pumped into science to study HIV and to generate um, drugs against HIV. Now, this is a virus that mutates incredibly quickly. It changes incredibly quickly. And so early on was understood was that if you gave somebody who was HIV positive a single drug against the virus then that might control the virus for a short amount of time, but the virus would mutate and learn to adapt to be able to be resistant to that drug. And so one of the critical things in terms of controlling virus infections was the idea of cocktail therapy, where multiple different drugs are added to the same treatment regime. And that then really makes it incredibly hard for the virus to generate those mutations so that it can become resistant to those drugs. And that was one of the critical breakthroughs. It's gone from, as we've said, a death sentence and a death sentence within a few years to somebody today who is HIV positive, who has access to anti-HIV treatment, has a normal lifespan and can continue their life as normal. And that's a fantastic achievement in 40 years. In terms of the cocktail of drugs, is, is that what people are still taking who have HIV? Is there still a big cocktail of drugs or have the drugs evolved to may, maybe be more refined? The drugs have definitely been designed to be, to be more refined. And so back in the early days, the early few drugs had pretty horrible side effects. The actual appearance of the body changes. The patients get wasting of the arms and legs, wasting of the face. In other words, and so for somebody who was HIV positive, where these drugs would only prolong their lives for a few months, it was quite a difficult decision as to whether or not you wanted the symptoms of the virus or the symptoms of the of the drugs. Uh, and another reason why compliance may not be good. We've moved on a huge amount since then, and so. Whilst there are some side effects, they're much more better managed um, with, with other medications uh, as well as the drugs 
having fewer side effects. But it is still a cocktail of drugs because you need to target that virus replication cycle at multiple places to really squash um, virus replication. You need multiple drugs to be able to do that. One on its own doesn't do the job. There is that perception that AIDS is very much in the history books now and we've sorted that problem out because people in the developed world aren't dying with such frequency of the illness as they may have been in the 1980s or, or 1990s. But of course, it's still a serious killer in many parts of the world. Isn't that right? Absolutely. This is still very much a pandemic um, for HIV that, that we're all living through. So it's thought that about 33 million people have died from um, from AIDS since the pandemic started back in 1981. In 2019, about 1.7 million new people became infected with this virus. The vast majority of those new infections are taking place in sub-Saharan Africa. But in most of the world, including Central, Central Europe, 95% of new cases of HIV occur in what the WHO calls key populations. And those key populations are men who have sex with men, um, injection drug users, sex workers, transgender people and people who are in prisons. And of course, all the focus or at least much of the focus now is on the long term requirement to take fairly heavy medications. How close are we to developing a cure for HIV uh, and AIDS? And are there any drugs that you can take that maybe will act as a prophylactic to stop you getting the illness? Absolutely. So, I mean, in the ways of reducing transmission risk, you know, we have the, the obvious things like people using condoms when they have sex, but there are also things called pre and post exposure prophylaxis. So those are drug cocktails that people can access if they think they've been exposed to the virus or if they think they might be exposed to the virus. And these are powerful anti-HIV drugs that basically stop the virus from being able to infect your cells in the first place. So those those are additional powerful ways that we have of reducing transmission. You asked about whether or not we have a cure for HIV. One of the difficult things about HIV is that it infects these critical cells of your immune response. And when we're trying to destroy an infectious disease, we rely on that immune response. So it makes it really difficult to find a cure. Now, there are two people in the world who have functionally been cured of HIV. I am cured of the AIDS virus. Two men who had a particular type of blood cancer, which meant that they needed a bone marrow transplant. And so that completely replaced their own bone marrow, which is the, the cell types that these T cells come from. And one of the things that, that we've learned over the decades about HIV is that not everybody is equally susceptible to this virus uh, as everybody else. If you think about it this way, HIV requires two locks to get into the cell. And in a tiny proportion of people, they don't have that second lock. And so the virus can't use its keys to get into the cell. And so what happened with the two people who have been functionally cured is that they were able to find bone marrow donors who had this mutation and lacked this second lock for the virus to get into the cell. And so their bone marrow was completely replaced by this mutant type, meaning that any residual HIV virus in their bodies had nowhere to go and couldn't get into the cells. My case, my history is proof in concept that HIV can be cured. 
That's amazing. And it, it, would that be a signpost for the way forward? It tells us a huge amount about how this virus infects cells and we can use that potentially to develop new treatments. But bone marrow transplants are incredibly difficult to do. They have a huge toll on the person. The risks are very, very high. So that in itself is not a treatment, but potentially we can learn from it to develop more treatments uh, moving forwards. But at the moment, uh, there isn't any cure for HIV. And of course, it's impossible to avoid conversations about vaccines in 2021. Is there any vaccines or is there any potential for vaccines to be rolled out to, to tackle HIV? Because we've seen the speed with which the world's scientific community has responded to COVID-19. And I know that a lot of the vaccine treatments were piggybacking on, on extensive research and, and medical advances that were already done. But is there any potential or possibility for a vaccine for the illness in the, in the years ahead? So an HIV vaccine is the, the holy grail of the, of the scientific community in many ways. But there are lots of hurdles that need to be jumped through because when we create vaccines, we are using the immune response to protect somebody from, from the virus. And of course, HIV attacks that immune response. And so it's difficult to, to enable the, the immune response to fight against it. One of the main ways in which vaccines function is that they train your body to produce antibodies and those antibodies bind to the virus, covering the virus and preventing it from entering the cell. The problem with HIV is it changes all the time, meaning that those antibodies that your vaccine has stimulated your body to produce don't bind effectively to the virus and so don't prevent it from um, infecting the cell. And there's lots of vaccines in development and some of the newer vaccines in development are trying to create broad neutralizing antibodies. And that's going to be a really fascinating story to, to watch as we as we go forwards to see the development of these vaccines and whether or not we can achieve that holy grail of an HIV vaccine. Could it be that the AIDS crisis as we know it today could be substantially over by the time the 50th anniversary of that first case being detected in California is reached in 10 years' time? Or is that just too fast? Wouldn't it be wonderful? I don't know. It's difficult. This is a virus that can change a lot and we have to keep working incredibly hard to, to learn more about it and to come up with new novel ways to, to fight back against how this virus changes. I think one of the critical things with HIV is that you can prevent transmission. So testing people, letting them know their HIV status, helping people to, to limit the risk of transmitting to, to other people, and also giving people access to the anti-HIV drugs to lower the amount of virus in their blood to, again, reduce transmission. And that's one of the critical things with giving pregnant women HIV treatment much, much earlier than if they were developing AIDS. And it's to get the amount of virus in their blood as low as possible to reduce the transmission risk to their babies. And it works really effectively. So for a woman who is HIV positive, the transmission risk to her baby is about 40%. But if that woman is then on the anti-HIV drugs, that drops down to less than 0.1%. That's the power 
of these transmission interventions. And so, yes, we need to work towards a vaccine and this huge development going on, which is which is exciting and fascinating. But we do have the tools available to reduce transmission dramatically. It's about rolling them out as evenly as possible across the world so that everybody has access to these interventions. Dr. Kim Roberts, thank you very much for talking to us. In the News will be back on Wednesday. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.